One of the most one-sided gun battles in the West was a one-man stand by El Thago Baca at Frisco, New Mexico, also called Reserve, New Mexico, on October 28, 1884. I'll show the Texans there is at least one Mexican in the county who is not afraid of an American cowboy, El Thago Baca boasted. He was only 19 years old, packing a mail-order badge when he rode into the little town of Frisco on a buggy in 1884. In later years, he claimed he was a self-appointed lawman, and there is a suspicion he didn't have a deputy sheriff's commission when he decided to bring law and order to that part of Socorro County. If he wasn't a sworn lawn man, it makes it even more remarkable that he'd stand up to some 80 vengeful cowboys. Trouble began when he arrested a 22-year-old Texas cowboy named Charlie McCarty for firing his pistol in Milligan's saloon. When Baca tried to make an arrest, the cowboy shot the deputy's hat off his head and rode off. Baca organized a posse. Caught up with the drunken cowboy, brought him back to town, and locked him up. Shortly after, McCarty's friends rode in and demanded his release. When Baca tried to negotiate with the cowboys, McCarty got his hands on a pistol and fired at Baca, but missed. Ranch foreman Young Parnum and his men retreated to regroup and then returned. Baca, his posse, and a band of cowboys squared off, both sides with pistols drawn, and all hell broke loose. During the firing, Parnum's horse was shot and fell, and it crushed him. He lived through the night, but died the next day. The cowboys put out a call to nearby ranches, claiming that Alfago Baca had gone on the warpath. He had killed several cowboys, and he was threatening to kill more. Actually, McCarty was taken to a local justice of the peace, given a small fine, and released, but the Texans wanted revenge for the death of Parnum. By this time, some 50 to 80 cowboys were in town, and Baca was forced to hold up in a Hakali for more than 33 hours. They surrounded him and poured withering fire into the small room. Baca was spared by a sunken floor. When he returned fire, his aim was deadly. Baca fired two rounds through the cracks and hit Hearn in the stomachs. Boys, I'm killed, he said as he staggered backwards and fell. The cowboys strung blankets on a rope between buildings so they could move in on the Hakali. One charged behind a shield from a cast iron stove, but Baca fired and creased his scalp. Citizens gathered nearby to cheer him on. During the fight, Baca put his hat on a bust of a plaster saint as a target. He later testified there were 367 holes in the door and a broom handle was hit eight times. Although about 4,000 shots were fired, but only one man was killed and one wounded. On the morning of October 31st, the Cowboys awoke to find Baca calmly uh, cooking breakfast and eggs and tortillas. They kept up the barrage all day and even tried to set fire to the mud-walled Hakali. By late in the day, the Cowboys were drowsy from too little sleep and too much whiskey when Deputy, Deputy Sheriff Frank Rose rode into town and restored order. Baca was persuaded to surrender but demanded he be allowed to keep his guns. The Cowboys escorted him to Socorro, but he rode in the rear with his guns trained on his captors. He was tried twice for murder but acquitted both times. Baca was so impressed with the attorneys who defended him at his trial that he went on to become a lawyer. The great-great-granddaughter of Charlie McCarty, the cowboy arrested by Alfago Baca in 1884, is with us here today, and this is her family story. This story was written by True West Magazine in 2017.
Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Southwest AgriTalk. This episode is sponsored by Cattle News Central, which is hosted by Mackenzie Johnston. For weekly updates regarding cattle news and issues in the cattle industry, head on over to Facebook, where Mackenzie uh, posts updates three or four times a week, and they're pretty good listening to. We've just picked up a new sponsor for Southwest AgriTalk, which it can be found in Portales, New Mexico, Squiggly Cactus Leatherworks, which is owned and operated by Hollis Lemons all the way in Portales, New Mexico. Now he can ship out. And if you want to look on his Facebook page or Instagram, I highly encourage you to do so because he does produce some high quality leather products that can be customized. Um, he's the man for that. And uh, we want to thank him for sponsoring Southwest AgriTalk. And uh, we have a very interesting episode for everybody here today. And with someone who I would like to call my friend for a long time, long, long time. And whether I have been her friend for a long, long, long time is up to uh, a lot of debate, but her name is Rebecca McCarty. She is a graduate of New Mexico State University, grew up in Reserve, New Mexico, currently a graduate student here at New Mexico State University, and she's studying a degree that I'm unfamiliar with, actually, um, in her master's. And we are exceptionally excited that she is here with us today on Southwest AgriTalk. Her family is... Uh, based in Reserve, New Mexico, and they have an just an awesome story regarding the Western lifestyle and from way back. And so we're glad to have you with us here, Rebecca. How are you? I'm doing great, Lyle. Thanks so much for having me here today and for inviting me to talk about ag and mm -hmm. keep expanding on what my family history looks like and even just catch up with a good friend. Yeah, <laughs> it's good to be here. Exactly. And I, I chose you, Rebecca, because I know that we can have a good conversation and we yes, always sir. do. <laughs> and you're and you every time I have a problem, I go to you for some kind of therapy, right? Yes, most friends do. <laughs> yeah, and you usually lead me to the destination where I'm like, wow, that's great. Because if I hadn't come come and talk to you, I probably probably would have made a horrible decision. <laughs> well, I'm glad we can be a support system and an encouragement in your life. Hopefully, it's good advice. <laughs> I like to think it is most of the time, it, at least. If nothing else, we'll have a good laugh. <laughs> it, it is good advice. If we can laugh at ourselves, that's fine. And so, Rebecca, I, I always begin an interview. I want to know about the person. Um, I want to know about how you grew up and what makes Rebecca, Rebecca. Yeah, that's actually obviously a really complex question. Um, like you said, I grew up in Reserve, New Mexico on a beef cattle ranch. My family runs a cow-calf operation back there. So agriculture is pretty integral to who I am as a person. It definitely is something that runs deep in my blood and is something I'm really passionate about. But when we look at what makes Rebecca, Rebecca, I would definitely say that a driving factor towards people is actually a little more important in the scheme of what makes me who I am instead of just the agriculture. So the really cool thing is that agriculture is in, involves a ton of really cool people doing a lot of really cool things. Mm -hmm. So the two of those passions really get to work together in really everything, working with people and working with agriculture. But I would say if it comes down to one thing that who is Rebecca McCarty, I would say a person who loves chasing after other people's dreams alongside them. And if we can throw some agriculture in there, then it is even better. Exactly. And I've never known you when you didn't have a goal. You've always been working on something, whether, you know, and we were in FFA together, whether it was FFA working in the state FFA office or working where you currently do with Fiveaic at a relatively young age, you have been extremely successful and, and you, you, you would be humble about it and say, well, uh, well, you know, it is what it, you know, or whatever, but you know, it's, uh, it's an important for me to say that Rebecca has always had, has always concentrated on a goal. 
And and that and that in a sense is is the goal really of Southwest AgriTalk is that we bring goal orient, oriented people on here who are chasing always chasing something, who are not stagnant, who are not set in place right where they're at. They're always chasing some kind of goal, and that that's the kind of person directly that Rebecca is. And so, with that being the case, there's an interest. There's an interesting story, you know, other than just about Rebecca, about her family. <laughs> And, and Charlie McCarty, which was your granddad, correct? Yes, sir. Who was your great-granddad? Uh, so great-granddad, his name was Owen. Great-great-granddad was also Charlie McCarty. Okay. So, and, and my granddad knew your granddad a long, long time because mm-hmm. my granddad also grew up in Reserve, New Mexico. Yes. And tell us what exactly, in a nutshell, explain Reserve, New Mexico. <laughs> Uh, As a place, Reserve New Mexico is a small, small dot on the map. Uh, It's located in the Gila Gila Wilderness over in western New Mexico, almost in Arizona, tiny little town, like we're talking 300, 350 people, very small dot on the map, but a place that I'm pretty proud to call home. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of that has to do with the people that are there. I really love just the environment that's created in small towns. You know, they're pretty cool when uh, my mom always says, you know, people based on the dog that's standing in the back of their truck. And uh, <laughs> hey, George, <laughs> yeah, it really is. Uh, so that's definitely something that I really value about home and about getting to call reserve home. Uh, we also have tons of cool things out there, mm-hmm. like lots of really cool ranches, lots of really cool opportunities to go hunting. So it definitely holds a pretty special place in my heart. I definitely think it's one of the better <laughs> gym type places mm-hmm. in New Mexico. I'm pretty fond of it. Exactly. My granddad grew up in a place called Largo Canyon. Oh, yes. Do you know where that is? I do, actually. Yeah, he was born in 1937 in in Reserve, New Mexico. And I don't even I don't think he was born in a hot there. There is no clinic. Uh, I don't believe there would have been at that time. No, he was born in in their house in 1937. Mm -hmm. And interesting, interesting enough about the people who had came there is that my granddad did not eat beef until he was 13 oh. years old. They raised beef, but they could not afford to eat the beef that they raised. And so how they survived is they they hunted deer and whatever they could find, and they canned it in deer chili and ate that all throughout the winter. And then, and, you know, when fall came around again, that's when they would stock the pantry. And so I can, I, I imagine there's similar stories that you know? Yeah, actually, as you were saying that, definitely stories come into mind. One, Largo Canyon runs right above my family's ranch. Mm-hmm. So that's actually a very familiar place. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that that's where your granddad grew yeah. up. So that's mm-hmm. fun facts. You mm-hmm. can always learn new things about friends. Mm, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, actually, that made me think about a story that my granddad's brother, Vernon, was actually telling us just a few months ago. So the house that my family lives in is actually the house that my great granddad built. So mm-hmm. it's built it's kind of got additions and all kinds of crazy things onto a log cabin that used to stand there and out on our covered porch there's some hooks that you can hang any kind of carcass from you know Mm -hmm. like deer elk cows uh but uncle vernon was telling us how in the winter they would just keep a a, it was a cow carcass hanging out there and um his dad would go off go out in the morning and just cut a steak off of it and his mom would fix it up and that's what they'd have for breakfast so definitely similar stories like Mm -hmm. that my granddad was born in 1940 so not too far off from when yours was Mm -hmm. so they definitely definitely grew up around each other and live in the same kind of lifestyle Exactly. And it was, it's, it's a different world as compared to now. 
yeah. where where everything is everything is is about everything is high paced technology yeah. and the, the, what's next you know and and like and one thing that i see in the generation that we live in is some kind of impatience mm-hmm. as compared to our granddads who were like i wouldn't call my granddad a patient person but i would certainly call <laughs> i would certainly say that he was one that i mean you look at the things that we've done at, our, at an early age that those guys couldn't have could not have imagined of doing, and that to me is 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 a total one eighty and and to to look at just exactly well how how resilient how tough are we as a generation yeah. as compared to them like my granddad's eighty four years old he won't die <laughs> he will not die and I, I don't want him to right. we know that we need that generation we need that generation to write down their stories and to know. To truly understand what life is really about. And I assume that, you know, the interactions that you had with your granddad really taught you about what life should really be about. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Lyle. I think, you know, I look back on conversations I had with my granddad quite often and I look back on them fondly, which is something that honestly, for a while, I didn't think I would say, you know, really similar to your granddad. Mine was mom always described him as rough around the edges and tough. They were tough old dudes. Like they just, they kept trucking, kept going and were all business, you know, Mm -hmm. all the time and smarter than heck. Like I look back at the way that my granddad set things up and like that dude is, he was just so smart, Mm -hmm. you know? So yes, like I learned so much. If you want to talk about people who had a huge impact on my life, look at my dad, my granddad, the the men in the McCarty family that mm-hmm. come before me, there were so many amazing dudes that are part of that line. And even you were saying that the whole purpose of Southwest AgriTalk is to talk about those goal-oriented people. Mm-hmm. Looking at the history of the Southwest, like those, those are the goal-oriented mm-hmm. people, right? So now we do get to be part of our generation. And really what makes us so goal-oriented mm-hmm. and such driven people is that we come from lines of people that were so goal-oriented and just like I said, so stinking smart to be able to figure out all the things that they were figuring out and face the challenges that mm-hmm. they were facing. Like, man, if I could be half as smart as my granddad, I would have it made. Like, right. it would We would call it a success. Exactly. And reserve, and, and if I'm familiar with my history, reserve, well, not so much now, but if you look back at some of the history, a lot of the people who populated reserve when it was settled were a lot of people who got ran out of someplace. Yeah, I think um, I'm not so familiar with other family stories, if I'm being completely honest. Um, I was actually, you know, going over some of the history with my dad and uh, our family. We came originally from Kentucky. Mm-hmm. My great, great grandfather did. And he ended up in Texas mm-hmm. and he kind of followed the cattle drives right. over to the Magdalena area and then ended up in reserve. Um, so I don't know for us, not so much necessarily getting mm-hmm. pushed out, out of, of other somewhere. Places, yeah. Although we maybe have done our fair share of right. <laughs> helping push other people exactly. around in a sense. We'll get to that story later. Um, yeah, well. but, <laughs> but I do think a lot of it, you know, over time, at least the people who have stayed, it's definitely because it's people who run in a different class, right? Mm-hmm. Like a different mindset of people that really do want the slower paced life and mm-hmm. really do want to live in a way that's connected to the land and connected to agriculture and in my opinion, one step closer to Jesus, right? Connected oh, yeah. to the land. <laughs> exactly. And the, well, your great granddad, your great granddad, correct, was the one who ran into the incident with Elfago Baca. Great, great. Great, that was, great. That granddad. was the first Charles McCarty. Yes. The first Charles McCarty. Okay. Yes, so 
tell us what you know about that story because there's an El Fago ba Baca statue in yes. reserve in the town square, <laughs> or I guess it's the town square. As as much of a town square right, as you can get. As you can have in reserve in Mexico. <laughs> but a statue of El Fago Baca in front of a, coming out of kind of, a, of an adobe house mm -hmm. and a statue of him pointing a gun at, at, at a general direction. And he's got another gun on his, on his, like his body. Right. And like he was in, it looked like he was in some well of a fight, but your great, great granddad was actually in that fight. Yes. So this story, like all stories, two sides, right? Two sides <laughs> yeah. to every story. And I guess when you involve drunk cowboys, there may be 13 sides to every story. So getting the actual story for this one is pretty hard. Um, there's tons of remakes, tons of renditions. Disney has a version of I it. I yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I'm going to be honest, this is not a plug to watch that. I'm biased because it's my family, but it definitely shows the opening scene. It shows Charles McCarty on a horse shooting in the air, drunker than snot. Now, <laughs> it actually says Charles McCarty in the... Uh... But you know, or I don't, I, oh, it's been years since I've looked okay. at it. So I don't actually know if it names him as Charles McCarty, but based on the way the story has been passed down, we are very aware that that's who they're representing. That's your great, great yes. granddad. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, um, like I said, lots of different angles at this story, but, um, one thing that's kind of interesting actually is that when I was talking to my dad about this, he said that Charles actually didn't talk about the story. So mm -hmm. even for our family to know what really happened that day, we really can't tell you because Charles really didn't talk about it. But um, the consistent pieces of the story tend to be that Charles and his buddy was, were at the bar and uh, a young hot shot dude rolled in and was trying to, you know, create a create a stirring. Most people say in a political direction, trying to get a new sheriff elected. And he deemed himself a deputy for mm -hmm. this sheriff. And, um, you know, cowboys in the Old West, probably similar to how we picture a lot of the Old Western movies going mm -hmm. down. They they got their their feathers ruffled a little mm -hmm. bit. And um, the most consistent part of the story is that Charles was very drunk, mm -hmm. um, went outside and they all got on their horses, were headed back to wherever they were going. Someone shot a gun in the air. We don't know if it was Charles or one of the cowboys he was with. But um, somehow Charles ended up being the only one of the cowboys that El Fago Baca could arrest. So he was actually the only one he got his hands on. Um, and so he ended up arrested, probably got bucked off his horse, and that made him <laughs> the easy yeah. one to grab. He couldn't get away. Knocked <laughs> him out. Uh, yeah. And so all his cowboy buddies went back to camp and rallied the troops came back to get Charles back um and he they ended up in a in a shootout for a little bit with El Fago Baca not, before not just a little sh a big shootout well yeah <laughs> yes. but they held that thing with bullets I mean they did yeah so that's what the monument statue I don't know what mm -hmm. you want to call it in the middle of reserve is representing is El Fago Baca in this hut that um that yeah, the cowboys were shooting at him. And eventually, I guess they got it worked out. One of the really funny things. So my then great granddad, so Owen McCarty, mm -hmm. um, he used to tell a story that has then been passed down throughout the generations of when he was about seven years old, his dad, Charles, and El Fago Baca actually ended up in a bar together in Magdalena, New Mexico, <laughs> a few years later. And they sat around laughing about it, buying each other drinks <laughs> until they were falling off the bar stools again. Yeah. So um, definitely not not something that like created a long-term hate between the two, but enough to get a statue built in Reserve, New Mexico. Yeah, he's like, yeah, you remember that time you shot at me all that? Yeah. That was funny, wasn't it? <laughs> yep. Well, like the way I understand the story is, so El Fago Baca wasn't even that old. 
No, and that I think that was I mean, knowing how people view the world, that was probably half the issue was he was young, a yeah. young hotshot coming in, telling these old cowboys how things were going to go. And they were like, no, sir, you're not not going to tell us how this will work. And when the way I've read the story is the jail or wherever he was at, what it, it was, it was dug into the ground about three or mm -hmm. four feet. So when you step down into the when you step down into the jail, I mean, he had just a perfect fort to protect himself from the cowboys over firing right. at him. And so, like, the story goes, he just made beans and tortillas and made a sandwich while they were just <laughs> trying to smoke him out, but they couldn't get it done. Yeah, basically, um, the way I understand the story, yeah, he, when the Cowboys came back, he took off, you know, and tried to find a place to hide. And he ended up, just like you said, we do know that there was, like, an old dugout that he was mm -hmm. able to kind of hide himself in a corner of for a couple days. And I think it, I don't remember the exact timeline of the shootout, but... It was long enough that homie would have been hoping for something to Some eat help. at that time. Yeah, Some and help. nobody yeah. was in an effort to come help him. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, he was definitely on the the wrong side of things as far as having people to come help him. But yeah, I guess as the story goes, um, Charles was charged for disruption of the peace or something like that. He had to pay a whole five dollars um, to in in order to get out of jail for his bail. And then they uh, went on their way and <laughs> met a few years later in Magdalena. I'd have been upset. I was like, who is going to repair this hut? <laughs> that has been just blown to pieces. Yeah. And nobody is just coming forward to say, hey, I'll pay for that. <laughs> yes. But how many cowboys? There weren't 50. The story says 50, but I'm like 50 cowboys. Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen something that's a number. Mm -hmm. Um. I know, uh, so a book that my family sometimes refers to, there was a guy named Earl Harvey. Mm -hmm. So he married the granddaughter of Charles. So mm -hmm. he would be like a great grandson or I don't know how that works, whatever. Um, but he wrote a book that was the story. Now, our family, based on what we know, like we, we see some things in there that are fictional, right? So even the numbers in that book, we can't really be sure about. Mm -hmm. But the book's called What Happened to Charlie. Mm -hmm. uh, it's by Earl Harvey. And that's one that I know my dad, when we were talking about this or have been in the past, him and my granddad both referenced that book a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I've read it. I don't remember if they put a number in there. Um, but I mean, it was enough to keep El Fago Baca in this dugout for a good amount of time. Wow. Well, and, and so your granddad was also an author. Yes. Charlie. Charlie, yes. your your first granddad, Charlie mm -hmm. McCarty, was all. And he wrote a couple books. Yes. And it, it, my granddad speaks about, you know, in reserve, when he was born, it was a major logging industry there. Right. But then somewhere along the way, Forest Service with a uh, horn spotted owl. This, yeah, spotted owl. Spotted owl. And, and some, what else? There was. Oh, gosh. There's been, I mean, there's a list of snakes and fish and yeah. owls now right. wolves <laughs> that yeah right and, and, and so a variety of environmentalists come in and say well we're going to shut down the logging industry right. right here and very well the lifeline of reserve new mexico and various areas clamato and yeah. things like that and so and and your your granddad was very outspoken and vocal including my granddad <laughs> against that sort of thing against the taking the industry out of that part of the world a part of the world where where primarily the only way to make a living was to own a ranch or or possibly work in town if you could find something so tell us about that story and and how your granddad trouble trouble in the green pickups mm -hmm. what the book is called and um can you buy it anywhere or find it or 
Um, I'm pretty sure you can get it on Amazon. Okay. I'm pretty sure both of his books are on Amazon. Mm -hmm. I haven't looked in a while because they're my granddad's. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I haven't had to look for a place to pur purchase the books myself. But uh, Trouble in a Green Pickup, yeah, it's all about challenges that granddad faced with primarily the Forest Service. That's mm -hmm. the reference to the Green Pickup. Um, so granddad actually, he started running the ranch when he was just 18 years old. His dad had a heart attack while they mm -hmm. were out having a branding and that left 18 year old Charlie to take over the place and finish raising his other three siblings and try to keep the legacy of ranching that had been built at that point in our family going. So 18 um, years old, 18 years old. Most people will be like, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm out. I'm going, remember, to, I'm going to college. <laughs> I remember thinking when I was 18 years old, I was like, man, like granddad figured this out now like i I'm like know. i can't run a toaster yeah like, how <laughs> yes, <am> I? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah and that's one thing that like you know we were talking about how incredible those people were he helped his other three siblings go through college like tried to help his mom in various ways whether it was building houses in more convenient places or whatever else like really just incredible tough people that come mm -hmm. out of those generations but um Granddad, yeah, he had his fair share of struggles with the U.S. Forest Service. So we we run a mix of private and forest service land. And a lot of that is, well, partially what the story comes from. Granddad also worked for the Forest Service for mm -hmm. a little bit. So you got to live with him to understand yeah, him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He is not timid in sharing his opinions mm -hmm. um, in that book. And he definitely took liberty to name just what he thought some things we're looking like and that's um, the way it ought to be you know he, amen he called it like it was <laughs> uh i do think it's so interesting though to see at least for me as a young producer to look at what he went through and then see some of the things we face now and it's mm -hmm. like you know we can so quickly get in this headspace of things are so hard and everything's awful you know people are against us but really people for a long time have been against production ag. Like mm -hmm. they really haven't made it easy. And so for me as a young producer, I find a lot of encouragement in it, not because of the political stuff that he says in there, but because it really just shows the grit that mm -hmm. people in the agriculture industry have and their mm -hmm. willingness to really fight for the things that they believe in. Right. And, 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 and evidence of the idea that we don't have to put up with everything. Right. Right. Yeah. And he didn't, as far as I know, didn't put up with a lot if he could help it. <laughs> you would be correct. He also wrote a second book. So <laughs> that one's called Fighting Him to Help Him. So literally in its title, it is proclaiming that he's not putting up with it. Um, but that one's actually about our family's hardware store. So that one talks about the challenges of what it was to not only be a rancher, but also a businessman. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, it just really, for me, really cool stories about like, you know, a guy who saw a need in his community and found a way to fill that need. And it's so cool for me to look back on that mm -hmm. and my siblings to look back on that because we quite literally would not be there if it mm -hmm. weren't for the way that he fought for the things that he believed in and the way that he saw a need and then filled a need. And it's just, it's a really cool legacy that my family gets to continue in the community and something we're pretty passionate about. Yeah. And it's exactly those kind of, kind of things that in that upbringing, that in that history that puts a fire in you to do what you do. Yeah. And so it, it's important that legacy, what does that legacy look like in the coming years? I mean, you have some brothers and a sister. Mm -hmm. What does that legacy look like for you as your parents say, well, maybe it's time for y'all to start taking more responsibility in this operation and making the independent decisions with it? Yeah, that's a really hard question. Um, 
for now, I mean, dad is definitely the man in charge and he does an incredible job. And he has no intention of of that changing anytime soon. (laughs) I have no intention of that changing anytime soon. Um, But you're absolutely right. I've got an older sister and two little brothers. And um, I don't know exactly what the future of the ranch or the hardware store is going to look like. I do know that all of us have pieces of it in our blood and Mm. all of us are, you know, interested in seeing the place continue into the next generation. My opinion, I don't care how it happens. I just want it to stay in the McCarty family. Right. Um, I I love the place. Like I, I live to be back home on the ranch. So there's definitely an interest in it in the future. But like I said, I would I'd rather it stay in the McCarty family than find issues in the future that make it leave the family. Um, yeah, I think it's something worth fighting for. You know, it's been in the family. I was doing the math earlier today, close to 150 years. That's not it's not history you just walk away from. You don't just let that go. Exactly. And what does what does your operation look like? Yeah, so it's a cow calf operation. So all of it is headed towards the the beef industry, right? Mm-hmm. So we're raising market cattle. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our calves get sold to producers in Kansas, Oklahoma, places mm-hmm. with grass that mm-hmm. we don't have. Um, and they'll raise them out until they're ready to go to a feedlot and then enter the the food system. Mm-hmm. So it's a I mean, I guess it depends on what you consider the sizing of ranches, mm-hmm. but um, it definitely aligns with the mm-hmm. average numbers of what the average ranch looks like. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. Overall, for me, it's just it's a good old time, you know, staying true to our roots, staying true to our history is really for me what the place looks like. I guess to me, it's like that's more important than the numbers of head we run or the profit that we make. It's staying true to who we are as a family and, and what we've always done. Are y'all a commercial herd? a commercial herd or a registered or? Nope. Nope. We are not registered. Um, so we run a Hereford Angus and some other things cross. <laughs> um, it's actually kind of interesting how it happened. I think, um, I believe the family used to run Herefords mm-hmm. and I don't know that they were ever registered as purebred Herefords, but primarily Herefords. And then, uh, life happens out in the wilderness and fires start. Yes. And, um, the way I've always heard the story was there were some other ranches that were having issues with wildfires and they needed places for their cows to be. So all the ranches kind of ended up putting their cows wherever they would fit, right. To keep them out of the fire. And we ended up with some crosses. So now we run <laughs> Herford Angus crosses primarily, but then, you know, fences break down, bulls hop over, things start looking funny sometimes. Black Baldies where it's at though. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> let me tell you, I love the little Black Baldies. They are the cutest thing. Just the other day, my dad sent me a picture of one and mm-hmm. I I just love their little spotted faces. I will never not get excited over baby cows. Exactly. You mentioned <laughs> the fires and, and that's one of the more dangerous occasional things that we have in a ranching or farming atmosphere, mm-hmm. more of a ranching atmosphere. My granddad recalls, you know, when the Forest Service had, Forest Service had came in and had shut down all logging for that operation, that they, they the fires had occurred because all the fo- foliage that would, we get no rain, the foliage right. falls off the trees and then it's just a tinderbox when it goes up. My granddad goes, oh, okay. Yeah, well, Where's the other the, lesson there? <laughs> the other problem on that now is the way that the forests are managed, you know, all the little saplings pop up everywhere. And those two are just a matchbox mm-hmm. waiting to waiting to catch fire. And I don't know, I can I can get on a soapbox about right. it. So <laughs> it's just one of those things we always have to be cognizant of. Right. And it's always about cause and effect. If I do right. this, what will occur? And if I don't do this, 
what will occur. Mm -hmm. And so those are just some of the various things that we encounter, you know, or y'all encounter on a daily basis on making those decisions. So currently, uh, we've talked a lot about your family and really if you've, you've had your own story Mm -hmm. and a a pretty, and a pretty good one, in my opinion, not a good one, a great one. And, and that involved a whole lot of being involved in FFA and, uh, let's hear about your FFA experience. Yeah. So, um, pretty extensive invo- involvement in FFA over yeah, the years. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, just, and you're still in it. You're still involved with it, with the yeah, National FFA organization. Yeah. Sometimes you just can't get out, you know, not for the things you, you really love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, actually I grew up for the first half of my childhood in Albuquerque, mm-hmm. New Mexico. And when I was starting middle school, so 12, 13 years old, my family decided to move back to the ranch. And at the time, if I'm being completely honest, I wanted nothing to do with it. I was going to be an athlete. I was going to take that path. You know, my mom was an athlete in college and I was like, that's what the cool kids do. That's what I'm doing. Um, and my sister signed up for FFA and our ag teacher at the time had an opening to go to convention. And the way I remember it, whether this is actually how it happened or not, I don't know. But the way I remember it was he called my parents and said, hey, I've got an open spot. Would you want to send Rebecca? And my answer was no way. I don't want to go. I don't want to be a part of those nerdy ag kids. Right. (laughs) Uh, Got put in the suburban, (laughs) went to convention and ended up hooked ever since, you know, that first convention. um, It really opened my eyes to what was possible in agriculture and what could be done in the industry and through FFA in a leadership standpoint. So got involved in FFA, stayed pretty involved throughout high school and then um, had the opportunity in college to take on some facilitating with National FFA. So I think really my time with FFA, you know, obviously it taught me a lot about agriculture, taught me a lot about education, but going back to what we talked about earlier, I think the biggest thing was it taught me the investments we can make in other people, right? So every time we walk into a room, there are people in that room that in some way or another, whether they recognize it or not, need someone to stand in the background and just be a cheerleader for them. And I think that's really the story of the agricultural industry, right? Like we are, in my opinion, the backbone of America. We are the cheerleaders of America. We quite literally lay the foundation for every other industry that exists. Or plowed it. Or plowed it. Or plowed the foundation (laughs) for it, yeah. Right, like we, we really are that cheerleader, that core piece that brings all of the rest of society together. And so really, you know, the time in FFA is, I guess the reason I'm still in it, the reason I still facilitate and still travel is because I, there's nothing like that feeling of getting to stand in the back corner of a room while other people succeed on stage or off stage, whatever that looks like for them and be that cheerleader and have those people know that when they step down off that stage or when they get up out of their chair, that there's someone in that corner that's been cheering them on And whether they walk away from that situation feeling successful or not, someone's still standing there to tell them they did a good job, give them a hug and enable them to move on to their next thing. Mm -hmm. And you currently work for a company right now who does that, who very much invests in people, which is called Viveic. It was started by a couple of former National FFA officers. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And it has grown exponentially. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't, you know, in the, in the scheme of, 
time been with Viveic for super long. I got to start as an intern for my last year of college. Mm -hmm. And then I actually just started my in my official role as a learning designer this past June. So Mm -hmm. a little bit over a year of time spent with Viveic. And man, like they are just you want to talk about people who know where they fit in the world and know what their job is and see it as a potential to grow other people. Like that is to me what Viveic is. So um, like you said, our purpose at Viveic is to build others capacity to do good in the world. And that's one of those things that, you know, when you look at your personal values and you look at the values of the company that you are at least headed towards working for or are working for, we always want them to be in alignment. And I don't think I always believed that that was possible, but it is so rewarding and so fulfilling to work with a group of people who really are just passionate about enabling others to do good things in the world and really just setting other people up for success. Right. And we're both graduate students here at New Mexico State. And what is your master's in currently? I'm currently studying agricultural and strategic communications. Mm-hmm. And that is that an official degree here at NMSU? I believe it is. <laughs> so it's definitely, it's a brand new degree, right? Why so, was I not told? Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. A letter will be sent. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a, a brand new degree here at New Mexico State. So something that has been in the works for about a year and they're just now getting it as an actual degree. I've been told that it will be official and I'm pretty sure it already is, but at least, I hope so. <laughs> at least by the time I need it written on the piece of paper for mm-hmm. graduation, I've been told it will be official. <laughs> exactly. And you started out originally as agriculture education extension, correct? Or communications? Uh, I started out as ag education in the teaching option. Okay. And then I, that was for my undergrad. Then I changed that to ag and community development, okay. which is another branch of ag, ag education. So ag and community development, tell us what exactly that degree entails? I like to joke and say that uh, I like to do things the difficult way, right? So I take the long way around also most of the (laughs) time. Yeah. (laughs) So basically it's ag education, but I'm not certified to teach in a high school classroom and I can't be an extension agent. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) basically it's ag education in the industry. So Mm -hmm. working with adults and other organizations and companies in the agricultural industry to educate them, which is really what I do at my job in Viveic. I just if I'm being honest, when I chose to pursue that degree, I didn't know Viveic existed. So mm. it was definitely chasing a dream into the dark, not knowing that there was a company it would fit in. Exactly. And it has Viveic fulfilled that exactly what you wanted to learn? Absolutely. Yes. It's actually, it's kind of crazy when I think about it. There were definitely times, you know, when I was questioning what degree to get and if I should stay in teaching, I remember talking to my mom and saying, you know, I would love to be in ag education, but I don't want to be in a classroom every day. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, there's so much value in that, in the people who are in the classroom. And I wouldn't be sitting here today if it weren't for people who were in that classroom. So, so much value in both high school agriculture educators and extension agents. But I knew neither of those really fit where I wanted to go. And I remember telling my mom, I would love if I could write the curriculum for those people, hand it to them, let them do their job, and then go on and talk to other people about agriculture, go attend conferences and talk to adults about the importance of agriculture. And it's crazy because I didn't know it at the time, but that is exactly the space that Viveic has me working in, is really getting to help companies think about the needs that they have either for their clients or just for their employees and finding ways to meet those needs through education and 
communications, really all kinds of different ways. Right. And and what does the 10 year plan look for you? Because some you joke with me like, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But I know deep <laughs> down, you're like, wow, this is where I want to be in five to 10 years. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know that the I don't know where I'll be tomorrow thing is so much a joke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I really love where I'm at with Vivaic. I really love the work that we do. And I love the the way that we enable other people to do good. So definitely would love to stay with Vivaic for, for some time. Um, another really intense passion of mine is travel. I love traveling because I think it really gives us an opportunity to see the world as it really is and to be able to discover people for who they really are. And so um, there's always this underlying thing in me that's like, maybe I should just jump ship, move to another country and help them build agriculture there because there's so many needs in the world, right? For people to know what it takes to build agricultural systems in a successful way. So if I'm being honest, I can't give you a straightforward answer. I can't tell you if in 10 years I'll be with Vivaic, if I'll be living in sub-Saharan Africa, or if I'll be back home on the ranch. Really, <laughs> they're all options at this point. <laughs> well, exactly. And you currently work as a National Life of Faith facilitator, correct? Yes. And what, what made you want to pursue that particular goal? Well, I had the opportunity during college to work for the New Mexico FFA Association. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a cool opportunity to get to continue doing some of the things that I got to do in high school with FFA without, I guess, as much of a time commitment. And I think, you know, going back to what I said earlier about enabling other people, I had the opportunity with New Mexico FFA to work with state officers and that's where I really discovered the value in like being the person who's standing there when other people walk off the stage. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's specifically in reference to state officers, because there's times in a state officer's year that, you know, something amazing happened and they're super excited and just want someone to give a hug and to say good job, you know. And then there's other times in a state officer's year that are incredibly heartbreaking mm -hmm. and really hard to face. And the same thing happens. They just want to know that someone's standing there to give them a hug and say good job. And so my work with New Mexico FFA is really what transferred me into wanting to pursue that with National FFA, uh, just because it gave me the opportunity to branch out into other places, keep discovering people for who they are, and continue being that cheerleader for others. Exactly. And you've traveled. How many state officer teams have you worked with as a result of this? Um, this year, three. Okay. Three state officer teams this year. So uh, it was kind of a unique structure. I got called in to work with some kind of last minute, which was really fun. Um, and then I also got to facilitate another conference oh, with yeah, National FFA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got to be a part of the New Century Farmer Conference mm -hmm. that National FFA does. And let me tell you, if you are a young producer looking to find connections, that's the place to be. There are amazing people that attend that conference and truly lifelong friendships that came out of that experience. So what does that look like? The New Century Farmer is a program or an, or an event established by or, or sponsored or by National FFA. Yes. And so you and primarily it it invites a, a ton of production agriculture students who are mostly former FFA members mm -hmm. to this conference. And so what Tell us about that experience and what 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 does it show a young producer? 
Yeah. So New Century Farmer is geared, like you said, towards young producers. So it's unique in the FFA world because it really does focus on people who are involved in production. Mm -hmm. And I think the whole purpose of that, obviously, I can't speak for National FFA on this, but I think the whole purpose of it is building connections with people that will be in this industry with you for the long haul. And it was so cool because we had everything from people in Florida who farm sugarcane to people in Nevada who are bridging their beef cattle production with wild horses, like crazy cool things that are going on in the agriculture industry that young producers get to come together and talk about for a few days. Um, We also go on tours to different types of production. So shrimp farms in the middle of Indiana is Mm -hmm. one thing we got to see. Um, Just really cool things that, you know, really inspire you to think about what's going on in the industry right now, where your operation is headed in the future, and then start to identify some people who can help you get there. Exactly. And and it's been something that's been an incredible experience for you. And so what's the ratio of students who attend that conference who come primarily from production ag and those who are wanting to go into production ag? Ooh, that's a really interesting question. So um, my understanding, and I could be wrong on this, but the students that we had there, all of them in some way are in production ag. Mm -hmm. So whether that's someone like me, who's coming from five generations of a beef cattle ranch, or someone who is a new farmer starting off on their own, everybody in some way has their hand in production ag. So that is one thing that's pretty unique about it is I'm and I could be mistaken on this, but production ag is a pretty critical part in the attendance. But like we know in the ag industry, you know, production ag can be defined in so many different ways. Oh, yeah, way more than the way it used to be. Right. So it's hard, you know, there's not a cookie cutter example of Mm -hmm. what production ag looks like. So that's where we'd have to call on our friends at National FFA and ask them, what what does this look like for Mm -hmm. this conference? Exactly. And so you you see a lot of value in communications field and in regarding agriculture. Mm-hmm. And so what is the value current? We, we've been seeing communications that have, that have things have just really blown up and, in <laughs> recent years where that there's so much marketing that occurs with on social media, um, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, uh, TikTok even. And that's where everything occurs. I don't even own it. I don't have direct TV or dish or how, how many yeah. people our age do you know have that? We all have subscriptions. <laughs> we all have subscriptions to Amazon or right. like or or YouTube TV or like Disney Plus, Netflix, right. and, and that's where people go to see their information. Or it's an app if you want to see if you want to watch the news mm-hmm. on a smart TV. Right. So we definitely have things are definitely changing from a marketing standpoint. I don't see commercials on TV anymore. All the commercials I see are on our phones, right. on those social media platforms. So. What does the future of communications look like look like to you and and why and why should we be why should we be confident in its future? I'm going to answer the second part of that first because I think it's easier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I think we can be confident in the future of communications because it has to exist, right? Mm-hmm. Literally everything we do communicates something, whether we're walking into a room with a certain look on our face or wearing a certain type of clothes or having a conversation on a podcast with someone, everything that we do sends some form of message. So the future of ag communications, it will exist. It has to exist. There's no option but for it to be a part of our industry. 
I think you named most of the challenges that we face, right? This instant gratification generation that we're facing right now that we are a part of um, is a really challenging one to know how to communicate with because you think about the attention span that we have as we're scrolling through Instagram or Facebook. And if something doesn't grab our attention in literally fractions of a second, Mm -hmm. we're going to keep scrolling and not even listen, listen to it. Also, the lack of things like commercial and radios, those mm-hmm. those type of things really kind of pose a challenge, in my opinion, to our industry, because, you know, we don't have the opportunity to have people stuck where they have to listen to something. Mm-hmm. It used to be when you watch TV, you had no choice but to see the commercials. And right? what you had to watch the commercials and now right. you didn't have to do but that. But now, mm-hmm. like you get five seconds in and then can skip and you know mm-hmm. we're all skipping. Like <laughs> we're not staying to watch those commercials. Mm-hmm. So you know, I do think there are some significant challenges coming specifically for ad communications. But on the flip side of that, there's also a lot of advantages of social media and the ability that we have to tell stories through that, specifically the ability that we have to get the media in the hands of the farmer directly to a consumer. Mm -hmm. That is an incredible technology that we've never experienced before in our industry. Exactly. And it's something that is just occurs everywhere and how many people listen to radio anymore i like i will once in a while before i connect to spotify on bluetooth on my in my pickup right and so i just think there's a lot of excellent opportunities there and it's because of people like you who are taking advantage of those opportunities and creating new ones that make sure that the image of agriculture is a positive one and there's a statistic somewhere and i've said this before 75 statistics are are all made up including this one but (laughs) No, no. The real statistic is that 75 percent and it's been this way for a long time, 75 percent of the of the uh, not from our standpoint, but of that percentage of what you see about agriculture is negative. So what does it mean in a communications field now? What 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 role are we the only thing that stands between a misinformed public and a and a and a, a producer that's trying very hard? Are we the only thing that stands stands it stands in the way of an utter collapse and people not mm. trusting agriculture you know it puts a lot of pressure on the industry but my my kind of gut reaction to that would be yes you mm-hmm. know as communicators and educators it is quite literally our job to tell the story of agriculture like we we pursue these careers because we're passionate about the things going on in the industry and we believe in its future and mm-hmm. that's why we're willing to spend years studying it and then you know, years in our career telling these stories. Um, And, you know, I think I don't want to gloss over the value that there is in those face-to-face interactions. And I think a lot of times in this advanced media age that we live in, we forget the value of a face-to-face conversation, or we forget the value of having a farmer or rancher go tell their story in a place, or even for us, you know, just walking through the grocery store and being willing to say, you know, when we overhear a conversation about all of the hormones that are pumped into beef, you know, Mm -hmm. being willing to say, actually, and face those challenges head on. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we discredit the value of putting a face with the industry. And in my opinion, that's really the key part that we're missing, right? Mm-hmm. If we're going to reverse the misinformation and be able to combat a lot of the things that we're facing, we've got to start being the face of the agriculture industry. Right. And and do you feel, I feel like we've gained a foothold in, in recent years as compared, I don't see near as negative things about, there's one documentary on Netflix called Cowspiracy that makes us all look <laughs> evil as, you know, I'll get out. But I think we have gained a foothold. And, and a perfect example of that is 
I've talked about this a few times is that I just got back from Stephenville, Texas with the national officer candidate training, um, 2021. And there's only five or six or seven, uh, national FFA officer candidates who come from a heavy ag background mm -hmm. and the rest were not introduced to agriculture until they entered a classroom setting. And, and that gives me hope that there is a, there is a huge amount of people out there who know and believe that they can play a role in agriculture and not come from a huge farm or ranch or operation or something like that. They, they know that they don't have to come from a family that is extremely affluent to be successful in that organization. And I think now people don't understand they, that they don't have to have roots in agriculture to, to plant their own. Right. Yeah. I think we often, you know, lose sight of really the diversity that exists in agriculture, mm -hmm. right? Like you don't have to be the person on the tractor or on the horse or out there in the pig pens mm -hmm. to be the person in agriculture. It involves so much more when we start looking at communication, science, technology, medicine, mm -hmm. like we say it all the time, but quite literally everything involves agriculture. Mm -hmm. So to be so narrow-minded that we think you've got to be the person out there in the field to mm -hmm. be involved in production ag, that does a huge disservice to our industry. Mm -hmm. So really, you know, I think you're right. I think we're seeing a great trend right now where we're starting to see people that are becoming interested in agriculture when they didn't, when they weren't raised in it. And mm -hmm. that's amazing. You know, my opinion as someone who's got it running in my blood for five generations, like we should be welcoming those people with open arms and mm -hmm. teaching them what we know, because mm -hmm. it's going to take everyone we can get to be able to meet the needs of the future. Exactly. And so, and it's people, it's people like you, Rebecca, who are a part of that future and are doing their level best to ensure that that future is more or less guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I want to thank you for being on Southwest AgriTalk here with us today. This has been an excellent conversation. And I think, you know, we've been friends a long time and, and bringing you on here is, is I, I knew that it would be just this good. And uh, you're definitely someone who is a pleasure to speak with. And, and the conversation has just been, been phenomenal regarding your family and the work that you're currently doing. And uh, I mean, ho hopefully we're friends for many more years. Yes, but I want to sir. thank you for being on the podcast with us here today. And hopefully we can have you back in the future. Yes. Thank you so much for having me and for letting me talk about my family and about mm -hmm. agriculture. And, you know, on your comment about friendship, I I never leave a conversation with with you without learning something. Mm -hmm. So thanks for for being a voice for ag and for telling telling the story of the industry. It's it's a great time. Whether what I tell you is true or not. <laughs> Sell it with confidence. Still learning something. Yeah. Well, anyway, everybody, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Southwest AgriTalk. Again, we want to thank our sponsors, uh, Cattle News Central, hosted by Mackenzie Johnson, and Squiggly Cactus Leather that is found in Portales, New Mexico with Hollis Lemons, who's a good man. We're good people. We want to thank them for sponsoring us. So uh, we'll catch you next time here on Southwest AgriTalk, and thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.